Enterprising in my surroundings I'm finding the quietest estates these days Just representation of storm brewing Amazed that the focus remains The vocal focal point of my change Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast I'm your host, Matt Chittam And this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there Who are working hard to get better While balancing running with the rest of their lives I'm so excited for today's episode Marathon Milestone Part 2 with Alexis McCoy. For those of you who don't know, Alexis is taking on an awesome challenge this fall, running three marathons over the course of roughly two months. And it is so exciting to follow her. Alexis is a friend of mine, someone who's been on the show before. Part one came out last month. And let me tell you, it was just so awesome to reconnect with her and hear about what she has going on. She recently, a week ago, ran the Boston Marathon. And boy, did she have an unbelievable race in so many ways, some positive, some negative, but overall, just an amazing experience. And frankly, this is why I'm so glad that we're following her. So without further ado, let's get into this episode with Alexis McCoy. All right, Alexis McCoy, welcome back. We got Alexis McCoy's Milestones. I am so excited for this mini series. We started it on a whim in our last conversation right at the end. I'm like, hey, do you want to do this? And you're like, yeah, let's do it. And boy, <laughs> am I so excited that I asked that question. You just ran the Boston Marathon just a couple of days ago. It was not your first, but it was an exciting first step in a really cool adventure for the fall. So before we take a deep dive into what just what just transpired, because it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about, if this is people's first time hearing you this month, first of all, go back a couple of weeks to the first one, but give them a heads up. What are you doing this fall? So this fall, I am running Boston Marathon. I guess that's in the past now. Boston Marathon and then New York City Marathon. Finally, I am running CIM, California International Marathon, in December. So three marathons this fall. We did a quick little synopsis about like, all right, what is this going to mean from a time and scheduling perspective? And, and um, you know, you never know exactly how it's going to play out. Lord knows um, there can be a lot of different curveballs. But Alexis McCoy, I did not think PR was in the <laughs> offing for the first race in this series. Holy cow with the 313. <laughs> Uh, you are correct. The PR was not part of the plan, especially not with the difficult course at Boston and especially not looking for a PR in the first of the three marathons. Um, so that and we'll get to it, but it was a pure surprise that I did not realize until after I crossed the finish line. That's that is exciting. All right. So let's talk about the couple of weeks leading in. So. A lot of people are familiar, and we've talked in this podcast, even shoot a couple weeks ago, we had James McCurdy on here talking about marathon tapers and what they can look like for people at different levels and different experiences and people who have had good buildups versus injury plague buildups and all of that. What was your taper like over the final two weeks or so, and how did that compare to previous marathons? So I would say I'm going to go back an extra week. The final three weeks, um, three weeks out, I raced a half marathon that I felt great in. And that week was 70 miles total. And two weeks out, uh, we started backing off, but just a tiny bit. That was 66 miles. And then the week before the marathon, it was 46 miles. And I have to say that 46 miles... I, my body felt it. It felt 
great. And I got a ton of sleep and every run felt smooth. Every run felt like it wasn't being forced. Um, I just, I felt really good going into Boston. I think the hardest thing when you have young children is just making sure you don't catch a cold from them before the race. And my son had a cold. So that was my biggest fear. But you know, it worked out. I felt great. I honestly think the last three weeks before Boston were some of the best I felt going into a marathon. And not only did you run a half, but you ran it at elevation, correct? Yes. um, Zero out of 10. Do not recommend for anyone. (laughs) Um, I ran two half marathons back to back. So four weeks out, I ran a half marathon at a little over 5,300 feet in elevation. And then th- uh, three weeks out, I ran a half marathon at about like 3,500 feet in elevation. And a lot of that was because I was trying to do two birds, one stone. I was trying to spend time with my sister and brother-in-law in Montana while also getting two good races in. Um, everyone warned me about the elevation. I brushed it off. I don't know if it was if that's ego or I just thought, whatever, it'll be fine. Uh, the race at 5,300 was the worst I've ever felt during a race. It was, it was terrifying. I got, I got through it, but I got my butt kicked by altitude sickness. Um, and then the half marathon three weeks out, that went significantly better. 3,500 feet feels way better than 5,300 feet. Um, I was able to place second female overall, and it, it was a world of a difference. I felt great. And honestly, it was just like that tiny little bit of a confidence booster that I needed going in to Boston. And... I definitely felt a small boost in fitness after that second half. Like I came home feeling feeling great, feeling fresh, feeling ready to roll. And what kind of effort did you put into these races? So the half marathon at 5,300, uh, my coach Sarah Bishop had gave me a best case scenario paces saying like maybe we could dip under seven minute pace. To put it in perspective, my half marathon PR is 129.20, something like that. And so that I hovered right around like 648, 649 paces for um, that race. And I ran a 138 at 5,300 feet elevation. So I just, just putting in perspective of how much that altitude can affect you, every single mile felt like a battle. So I never right. and once... That, and that pace was actually slower than you ran at Boston. Yes. Yeah. I actually, um, the half marathon split at Boston was faster than those two half marathons that I raced. Uh, so, yeah. So once we... I say we, I always refer to my coach and myself as as we, like she's running with me. But once I ran the first one and we got an idea of how my body was going to respond to that altitude, we had a much more conservative plan for the half marathon at 3,500 feet. And that one I ended up feeling much better and ran a 134. So I actually did better than what the race plan 
had intended, but I think it helped like having that pressure off and let's just see how I feel. And, and at the end of the day, all these races you're doing leading up to your marathon race day, it's all just about the effort. It's about getting a really, really good hard run in. So it's okay if you fall short of your goal because at the end of the end of the day, maybe, maybe you just got a marathon paced effort in and that's great. And I do think it really helped. Yeah, even even in the second one, uh, where you you run a one thirty four, that was you know strictly speaking faster than your marathon pace at Boston. So maybe maybe you didn't. And we'll talk about this in terms of the effort level you gave at Boston, but just from a is this my marathon pace perspective? Was is seven ten? I guess part of this is like in retrospect and what you thought about at the time, did you view 710 pace or so as your marathon pace? Or was that supposed to be like a little bit faster uh, than marathon pace? Or how how did it align with your training at that point? I was really happy because my coach and I had talked about doing 725 pace at Boston. We were thinking about uh, 315 as the marathon goal. And so when I finished and my watch said like 709, 710 pace, I thought that's solid. That is solid going into Boston because I know that if I can do this at altitude, 710 pace, I can turn around and do 725 at Boston. And, and I don't think that's a stretch. Yeah. I mean, shoot. In fact, a lot of people will, will try to do a half marathon or 10 mile effort at marathon pace and view that as like, this is a, like one of my capstone workouts in a marathon buildup. So even running 725 pace for that might have been a great inclination. So did you, how did it feel from a recovery standpoint in terms of what you need to do to recover from that race? And did it differ at all from some of the other long runs you'd put in, um, in the, in the preceding weekends? I think I was just so amped to have an opportunity to race back to back that physically, mentally, emotionally, it felt like there was no problem with recovery. It kind of just pumped me full of adrenaline and endorphins. And I came back from that second half marathon, just pumped and ready to go. And I knocked out, I went right back into workouts that week after the second half. And I knocked out two of my best workouts that I had during the marathon training cycle. So it all just seemed to like come together at the right time. Yeah, you must have just been super confident. Now, you've run Boston several times and your coach has coached many people through Boston. Uh, It is a challenging course and certainly can hit certain people at certain things, certain ways in terms of what they need to stress or emphasize versus not emphasize. An example of this would be for certain people, it's making sure they don't go out too fast because it's downhill. Other people, it's, you know, a little later part in the race, especially into the hills, whether it's Newton or later on, uh, making sure that they're, they're ready for that. With your experience on that course, were there certain elements of the race that you were kind of mentally preparing for ahead of time more than others? I was shocked at what I thought I was getting myself into and then the reality of it. I had not stepped foot on the Boston course since 2013. And I was pretty confident going in that I really understood the course and I really knew what was coming. I could not have been more wrong. The course was more difficult than I remembered. The course was more just just trickier than I remembered. The first 10K was faster than I remembered. It's like everything that I thought 
I, I remembered, I might as well have just thrown it out the window because apparently I can't trust my memory. But eight and a half years is a long time. And I remember saying to people like, oh, heartbreak hill, it's not that bad. Lies. Lies. <laughs> it's awful. Right. Sometimes our brain like sands the edges of our memories uh, in certain things. And it's, it's funny how you, you talked about even the first 10K, like people forget like it's, it's downhill and it's like, all right, well, that's, is that a positive thing or not? Because so many times with marathoners, and I'm sure you can have experiences like this as well, where you're supposed to feel awesome in the first 10K. That's the whole point, right? It's be, it would be like a miler not feeling good during the first 100 meters. You'd be like, well, this, <laughs> this really isn't how you want to gauge your effort at this point, right? This is just, we're just stepping foot on the course here, right? Like you don't want to, you don't want to make any judgments about how your day is going to go before you take your first gel, I guess. Um, so the 10K, and then there's some people who are like, hey, I'm feeling great. I'm going downhill. I'm going to push it. I'm going to push it. And then all of a sudden, especially if it starts getting harder later in the day, that can have an impact. So what was your race plan going into the day, not only from a pacing perspective, but from a nutrition perspective and how the weather did or did not have an impact on that? So my uh, the original race plan was supposed to be 725. And then my coach, I think, looked at my final three weeks going into Boston. And she decided that I could take a little bit of a chance and be a little bit more aggressive. And she told me to go out at 720 pace, which I immediately was super nervous about when I was looking at the weather. I definitely trained in the New England summer, which was humid with a high dew point. It's sticky, but I don't necessarily acclimate to that. I guess people say, oh, by August, you're acclimated to that. I'm like, I'm someone who suffers all summer long. I would prefer to be freezing cold at the start of a race. And I was terrified going into Boston scene, 65, dew point of 60, hotter as the um, course goes on, the humidity was at like 88% and was going to go up as the course went on. So my biggest fear was the heat. And so I did discuss with my coach, I don't know if I can hold 720 with a dew point of 60. And she said, you know, if if that's what your body feels, then of course, slow down to 725. Um, of course, things changed quite a lot. Uh, moments before the race, I made a game time decision that I was going to go out with two of my coach's other athletes. Um, one of them, her name is Monica. The other one is Lauren. So Lauren had a race uh, goal of going out at 7.15. And Monica wanted to go out somewhere between 7.15 and 7.20. Both of these girls I had no business running with. They both have PRs that are significantly faster than mine. And we decided on the bus ride out, like, look, yeah, like, you know, maybe do a couple couple of the first miles together. I ran um, 16 miles with them. I ran, and of those 16 miles, none of them were any slower than 714 pace. <laughs> Ooh, wait. And Monica, please yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, because I might be confusing her with another runner. But Monica's doing something similar to you in terms of a fall fall adventure series. So Monica had just um, completed Berlin Marathon, and it was a hot 
sticky day in Berlin and she had just run a 313 at Berlin and she came into Boston feeling fabulous, uh, super fit and workouts were going well. And so she felt really good about starting out around that 715 pace. And I told her like, look, I don't want to hold, I don't want to hold you back. But the three of us started together and stayed together. And I honestly do not think any of us felt out of place with one another because we all felt good. We all like the breathing wasn't labored. I physically did not feel like we were pushing the pace. Of course, every single mile, we would say the splits that were coming across our watches and we would mumble to each other like too fast, too fast. We should back off. And then one of us, one of us would say, well, we'll see how we feel in a mile. And then we're going over the timing mats and saying, sorry, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. To our coach. Yeah, and she was posting online as you guys were going, like, my three athletes are running together. This is crazy. Uh, I think she meant it, like, in a positive way. Like, how fun is this, you know? Um, Yeah. Especially when it wasn't exactly a a planned thing. Um, So here you are. So you were very aware of your of your pacing as you were going. So you not only did you make a conscious effort at the starting line, but you were aware as it was happening. Um, what were you doing from a pu- from a fueling perspective? I mean, obviously it worked because you had a great day. So tell us how how that was supposed to go. So this is something I really was hoping would come up because I had one of the biggest failures of the day with my fueling and it completely derailed my race. I understand it sounds crazy saying that because I PR'd, but what had happened was the carbo load, I did a 60-hour carbo load. So uh, Megan Featherston, she recommends 60 to 72 hours. And I started Friday night before Monday's race. And I really stayed on top of it. Thankfully, it was like 450 grams of carbs, you know, on Saturday and on Sunday, I felt solid. And we had discussed um, how much fluid to take in before the race, what I should have for breakfast. And I got it in. I definitely took in a little bit more fluid, a little bit more liquid IV, sodium than maybe I should have. But I had woken up Saturday night and Sunday night completely drenched in sweat, the wonderful pre-marathon nerves. And so I was nervous going in that I had lost too much salt So instead of one liquid IV added to my water, I added two and was chugging that. And then at the start line, I took a gel and I got a little aggressive and decided I was going to take in just as many calories as possible. So by about mile nine, I had consumed three gels already and I was taking more in. So mile nine, I've already had 300 calories Then I was taking Gatorade Endurance as much as I could get in my system every single water stop. I wasn't having water. I was having Gatorade Endurance. And it created the perfect storm of, and this is where I'm going to get a little TMI. So I apologize to everyone out there, but it's an honest conversation to have that it was the second day of my period and that causes your body to slow down the digestion process. So what happened was 
any other day, it would have been fine, the amount of calories I had taken in. But the gels and all that fluid, all those electrolytes, the sodium, it was just sitting in my stomach like a brick. And I went from feeling absolutely incredible to mile 11. I'm running with the women and I say to them, I'm going to puke. And so I immediately stepped off the course. My whole face got burning hot and my whole body just, it was like an involuntary thing where my whole body just wanted everything out of my system. I, my vision was blurry, things were spinning. And in that moment, I thought to myself, I need a medical tent. Like I, I can't run again. Like it, 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 took over my body. So I stepped off the course. And as soon as it had come on and taken over me, it was gone. So it lasted about 15 seconds. So I literally stepped off the course mile 11, told the girls to go. I walked and then it was just gone. And my brain was like, go, go, go. So I never puked. I took off in a dead sprint. I caught back up with the girls And I was able to stay with them until mile 16. And then it happened again at mile 16. And that's when I, when I lost them. And that's when we had started like one of the climbs, one of the hills. And I completely lost them. I walked again. This is something I've never done during a race before. So this is walk break number two. This kind woman on the side of the road is holding a mini water bottle She twists it open for me, hands it to me. I dump it all over my body. I'm trying to get myself to decide whether or not I'm going to puke. Again, it took me about 15 seconds. And then the wave of nausea was gone. And I bolted again as best I could. I couldn't catch up with the girls. And then a third wave of nausea came around mile 20. At that point, I, I walked through a water stop. To comparatively to, to show the difference, so that water stop that I walked through on the third wave of nausea was an 815 mile, whereas before that, before mile 16, I hadn't run over a 714, just to show people how much that affected me. By the third wave of nausea, I had the ability to tell myself, this will pass, this will pass, this will pass. But the first two times when I got dizzy and thought I was going to puke, I truly, I truly mean this. I did not think I was going to finish the race. Yeah. And it's like, I'm sure you looked down at your watch and 15 seconds have gone by. It must have felt like a lot longer than that as your mind's racing and your body's retching and not feeling great. Were, did you consume, I guess to say, what did you consume between miles 11 and 20 kind of during these, these, you know, three different periods of, um, I even know what you'd call it. I guess distress. Nothing. Like that is the crazy thing. So I stopped taking in fuel because everything sounded gross. I was passing the Morton gel stations where they and I couldn't look at people because I thought if I if I even think about a Morton right now, I'm gonna lose it. I'm gonna throw up. So I stopped drinking the Gatorade Endurance at each stop. I no longer took any gels. I took a couple sips of water as I was passing water stops. 
I couldn't get anything in my stomach. Every The thought of anything just made me feel nauseous. And all I could think is just survive, just survive, keep your head in the game. And I was terrified. I was terrified because it didn't feel like, oh, if I throw up, I'll feel better. It didn't feel like that. It felt like if I threw up, I was out of the game. So that's why I just, I stopped taking in fuel, which is insane that then I was running on very little calories. It also goes to show that my carbo loading the 60 hours before the race saved me. Yeah. And I think it also shows that you're pacing while at first being faster than you had anticipated, obviously wasn't over the edge because if you had gone over, you know, your aerobic threshold, then you would have been, you know, you would have needed more glycogen, more glucose in order to maintain locomotion at that point, because you would have had an empty tank if you were going above your aerobic threshold without taking things in. Um, Because as you know, like once, once you hit a certain time limit, no matter what your carbo load is, there's no more fuel in the tank. That's why we're, that's why we're taking fuel on the run, not just carbo loading and then running dry uh, as we progress through the race. So I guess it's also a testament to how well you paced it out, because if you had stepped on the gas too much, you might have been in some serious trouble around mile 2021. 20, yeah, I think it's the world's uh, most epic positive split. Uh, we all three of us came across uh, halfway at 308 pace, and I finished with a 313. So there you go. <laughs> well, I see a lot of runners who had much more positive splits over that weekend. So I can't, I cannot give you the. The crown, the the championship oh, okay. belt, nothing. Because there were again, and no disrespect to any of these people, uh, but there were. This was a weekend of positive splits um, in Chicago and in Boston for so many people, and for so many reasons. And again, I'm not throwing shade at anybody for that, uh, but I can't. I don't think I can give you the crown for that for that positive split, Alexis. I think uh, it was just a frustrating situation for me to be in because I honestly have never felt in better shape physically. Like my legs were ready to roll. Even on the hills, I thought, yeah, obviously I'm slowing down, but I felt super strong physically and mentally. And you could see it in my splits, the split where I had the third wave of nausea, 8.15. The very next mile, whenever I felt fine, was a 7.10. So it's just, it was just frustrating because it was like, come on, come on, body, just cooperate. But honestly, I'm not alone in that experience. And I talked with Megan Featherson, um, my dietitian yesterday, and it was like, it was, in retrospect, a really good learning experience. This is how you figure things out. Sometimes things have to go wrong. So you can say like, this worked, this didn't. And I'm very happy to say I'm never going to have another Morton gel for the rest of my life. <laughs> well, you are in a, a rare situation. And I was talking to someone about this just yesterday. Actually, it was Emily Heller, who ran Chicago, who um, does the Run Like Heller YouTube channel, which I am such a big fan of. And we were talking about like, hey, oftentimes when, when you get big wins, it's hard to learn things from a win. Oftentimes we learn I things agree. from a loss. I agree. But you were in a situation where you got both. Oh, yeah, true. I didn't think about it that way. <laughs> you got enough of... The, the challenges and the hurdles to learn lessons and to set yourself up for future success without having the like wheels have come off type moment. And it's like, all right, all the goals are out the window. Now it's just getting to the finish line. And 
of course, I'm going to be grateful for this experience, but I wish this could have gone better. You, you were able to couple the learning experiences with the PR, which I think is pretty rare. Yeah. I, and honestly, I'm still in shock. Um, I typically, it is a habit of mine to always, always keep my Garmin watch on the face of just the mile that I'm that I'm in. I only want to see my current mile pace. And so I never look at the overall time on feet until I'm maybe a mile, mile and a half left in the race. And I stopped looking at my watch um, towards the end because I'm like, I definitely don't want to click it over to the mile, you know, to the time on feet, to the overall time, because I thought, it's going to ruin the experience for me if I realize I'm a minute shy of my PR. And I got to the last point two, and it was that wonderful, you know, stretch down Boylston where people are just screaming their heads off, going crazy. And nine times out of 10, I am just trying to sprint my butt off and get across that finish line. And I definitely did not speed up my pace. I held, I held the 710 pace, but didn't, didn't make an effort to go harder because I didn't want the race to end. It was so magical. I put my hand over my heart and looked up to the sky and people were just so enthusiastic. And if you give any emotion to the spectators, they just throw it back to you tenfold. And I was crying and put my hands up in the air. And I thought, I just want to hit pause. I don't want to look at my watch. I don't want to worry about the time. This is the most magical gift to be back and have the opportunity to cross the finish line when there were times in the race that I truly did not think I was going to finish. And so when I crossed the finish line, even then, I didn't stop my watch. I kept walking a couple of feet and I was like, oh, okay. So I stopped it, still did not look at it. And when I, you know, got my wits about me, I saw Lauren and Monica right in front of me. I thought they had been like long gone and I lost them at mile 16. Well, it turns out they both ran a 312. And so I finished about 17 seconds back from Lauren. So that was one of the most joyous surprises is seeing them at the finish line. It was like, oh my gosh, the three amigos, we're back. We see each other at the finish line. We're hugging and crying. And that's when I looked down at my watch and realized, I think I PR'd. What a unique PR story. My goodness, that is wild. Well, this is the thing I was also wondering, because you're in this experience and you didn't go into this race at first when we talked like a month ago, like, all right, I want to run as I want to crush Boston, right? It was like, all right, Boston's going to be good and we're leading to the next, you know, it, it was kind of like this, again, it's different when it's an A race and there's nothing after it, right? So obviously you you came into this race, especially the morning of where it's like, no, you went in, you're, you're putting it all out there. When things started going south for you, was there a temptation or a little devil on your shoulder being like, just save yourself for Chicago? Just, New York's coming up. Just save yourself for New York, right? You got two more marathons coming up. Like, were there, what were the demons, if there were any, whispering in your ear when you were in those low moments? Those demons were pretty aggressive. And the demons were not saying, save yourself for New York. The demons were saying, 
never again run a marathon. This is terrible. Who thought of this idea? I was angry at myself and thinking, what did I get myself into? I wasn't thinking save yourself for New York. I was thinking, girl, you're not running New York. You're not even, you're not even going to make it to this finish line. What are you doing on this course? You have no business being here. Why don't you go stand off to the side, throw up and quit? That was, that were the nice, nice words of affirmation from my demons. <laughs> oh my God. So were they... Were those still there after your, you know, two 15-second bouts of distress and later the one-minute bout of distress? Like, or were, or were they just kind of concurrent with the down periods? And then when you had the positive periods, you were in the right frame of mind or a positive frame of mind? I think once the waves of nausea passed, especially, especially when the third one hit me, I at least had learned to that point. I was like, this will pass, this will pass. And so it by the third one, I thought, you're at least getting to the finish line, and then you can make a decision about what you want to do after this. But no quitting until you get across that finish line and you check in with yourself. The thing that helped a lot is my um, local running club, Runaways Running Club out of Portland. I knew they were at mile 23, and I held on to that for dear life. That that third wave of nausea, I thought, well, you get to see your friends in a couple miles, and it would be great to high-five them and smile. And it's, it's the little stuff like that that gets you through. It was like survival mode. I know I have someone to see at 23. I know this nausea will pass. You know, don't worry about the demons. You've been here before. And once you get past that mile, like 20 and a half, 21, you know that it's going to get a little bit easier. You know that there is the benefit of the downhill. Yeah, no, good point. That's for sure. All right. What a, what a race. <laughs> what a race to start all of this on the, the highs and the lows. And of course, who's not going to be emotional at the end of a marathon, no matter how it goes, but especially something like that. Now, we are a few days post-race, right? We're recording this at noon on Thursday. So we're, you know, three days uh, after the race itself. But it's kind of a quick turnaround for you in terms of figuring things out. Oftentimes for a lot of marathoners, it's like, all right, I got a month to kind of like, yeah, wade into this period, go by how I feel. It doesn't matter. Nothing's on even on the calendar, never mind anything coming up quickly. That is not your situation. So... What exactly are you doing? And even more importantly, sometimes, what are you not doing in the in this gap period between Boston and New York? So what I would normally do is take two full weeks off. And within those two weeks, I would probably run maybe once or twice and really soak up the rest and not even think about what's next. Uh, so this time around, I took one day off. I took Tuesday off, and then I ran four miles yesterday. This week will be a 70-mile week. That includes the marathon. I will Thank do— God. Thank a, God. Yeah, oh, yeah, sorry. yeah. Not, my, not that I, I don't want to editorialize, but, like, I almost had a heart uh, attack when you said that. I know. <laughs> I know your face is so funny. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, because my work—my training week is Monday to Sunday. So, <laughs> uh, so Sunday, I will attempt— uh, a workout. It's a progression run, and my coach knows those are my absolute favorite to do. So I'm super excited about that. It's an 18 mile progression run. Uh, the biggest thing 
about Boston and how I felt during Boston, especially when those demons were so loud. Uh, I promised myself after the race and in these past couple of days that I will continue to check in with myself mentally, emotionally, physically. I don't want to glorify the (laughs) terrible idea of running three marathons so close together. I don't want to act like it's it's normal. What I think is the best thing to do is constantly say to yourself, am I sleeping enough? How does my body feel? Am I committing to my nutrition? As of right now, I physically, mentally, emotionally feel like running New York is the right choice for me. And I do not want to go run it for fun. I want to push it. I want to see how my body will respond right now. It's responding great. Of course, it could change week to week. Runners know. Runners know that you can feel fine one day and the next day your hamstring's like, no thanks. So I'm excited. I'm so excited to run New York. It's it's a bucket list race. It's a dream come true. It's the 50th anniversary. Like, let's go kick some ass. I love it. I love that attitude. It's great. All right. Are you doing anything else in the interim that can help you with recovery or, you know, whether it's like chiros, massages, PT, you know, it's anything with, um, you know, other professionals or just things that you think that will help you. Again, it doesn't have to be anything physical. It can be mental and emotional um, that, that you feel like will, will help you in this period. Yeah. So talking with Megan Featherson yesterday, she hammered home with me. She was like, this is the most important week for your nutrition. You really need to focus on getting because. Typically, I'm not hungry until like the week after the marathon. It's like right now, everything in my body is just like, oh, I'm so feel so gross from carbo loading for almost three days. And so I need to make sure I'm getting in those three complete meals, getting all my protein in, making sure I'm not skimping on nutrition and sleep. I mean, it's all the same things. It's it's I find it funny that people think it's so much about running, like, oh, my training needs to be on point for New York City if I'm going to do well. It's honestly everything outside of running. It's I need to focus on doing more yoga, more mobility. I need to focus on getting eight to nine hours of sleep. I need to make sure that everything I'm I'm eating, I'm putting into my body is mindful. I'm thinking about how it's fueling me. And the biggest thing for me is I've had the same sports massage therapist for four years. And I have a great relationship with him. I I saw him two weeks in the 10 day or two times in the 10 days leading up to Boston. And I'll probably see him once a week leading up to New York. Gotcha. And what does that do for you? He just seems to work magic on anything that hurts. So it's just your typical sports massage, but he really, he works with a ton of runners. So he understands, I went to him um, leading up to the race and I've just been having nagging like Achilles pain in both Achilles. And as soon as I walk out the door after a session with him, zero pain and 
I always feel a million times better. During the session, I don't feel so great. I'm usually in a lot of pain because on a scale of one to 10, he's about a 10 as as far as like pressure and getting deep into my muscles and doing really good work. And we've only focused on lower body. So I'll be in there for 75 minutes and he's just working purely on my legs. And it's it's a miracle worker. Wow. There you go. All right. So what's the, if you already know it, what's the time frame for getting into New York pre-race and, and all of that? Yeah. So I would like to get in on Friday, probably like Friday morning. There's a ton of direct flights, luckily, from um, Maine to New York City. So probably Friday morning, have the hotel booked. The hotel is super close to our bus loading spot because the bus will have to be on there at 5 45 a.m so get in friday and then leave probably monday night but i think if i get in friday that's just that's enough time to get in get my packet unwind and start the carbo loading there you go alexis i can't wait to talk to you again (laughs) post new york there'll be a lot of fun uh seriously good luck and congratulations first step of the process again each step is 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 awesome in its own right even if it even if it didn't extend anything beyond just the boston marathon uh we'll be talking to a lot of people who ran this weekend both boston chicago and all of them are awesome as are you thank you so much for coming on thank you matt Alexis, thank you so much for coming on this show. Always a blast to talk to you. I can't wait to reconnect after New York. In addition to that, maybe we can get Sarah Bishop on, her coach and also podcast favorite here at the Rambling Runner podcast to talk about how she is helping Alexis become the best and most successful runner that she can be. And obviously they're doing a wonderful job. Thank you so much for listening. It's so greatly appreciated and have a great day. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry I got.